Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Onelenzinzi, Tabiso Lohoko and Figilele Nwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Security Council renews UN mission mandate in Western Sahara, and South Africa's finance minister delivers his midterm budget. In economics news, Uganda Telecom's operators urged to list on local burrs. And in sports news, Nigerian Football Association recalls a captain Ahmed Musa for AFCON qualifiers. But first up, the news with Onilin Zinzi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Lulu. Mozambique's main opposition party, Renamo, has asked the country's top court to annul the results of the October 15th general election, which saw incumbent President Philippe Nyusi and his Free Limo party winning. Political observer had hoped the election would calm tensions in Mozambique. Instead, the contested result has stoked divisions as opposition parties have cried foul. The two fought a 16-year civil war that ended in a truce in 1992 but have clashed sporadically since. Renamo had wanted to win control of a number of provinces in Mozambique Centre and North but came away empty-handed. Nigeria's Supreme Court has dismissed an appeal filed by main opposition candidate Atiku Abubakar against the re-election earlier this year of President Muhammadu Buhari. The panel, headed by the Chief Justice Mohamed Tanko, said it had examined all the briefs and exhibits submitting, submitted rather by the petitioner but found that there was no merit in the appeal. The panel said the reason for the dismissal will be given later. A presidential election tribunal had dismissed a challenge to Buhari's victory, following which Atiku mounted an appeal at the Supreme Court. Atiku, a former vice president, led the People's Democratic Party, PDP, into the polls but lost to Buhari, who secured a final term with the governing all-progressive Congress, APC. Facebook says it has suspended three networks of Russian accounts for trying to influence politics in several African countries. This by a Russian businessman accused of interfering in past U.S. elections. He was sanctioned by the United States for allegedly trying to influence elections there through convert social media campaigns. The BBC's Marilyn Thomas. Russia has once again been accused of operating a complex disinformation campaign this time targeting users in countries such as Mozambique, Sudan, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. 
Facebook said the networks used fake and compromised accounts to post about local news and geopolitical issues in Arabic. They also shared content from Russian media. Russia's encroachment into a region which is less closely monitored than the US or Europe is a sure sign of its growing capabilities in building a well-oiled propaganda machine in Africa. Lastly, the Office of the United Nations High Commission for Refugees in South Africa, the UNHCR, has appealed to refugees and asylum seekers staging sit-ins at its Pretoria and Cape Town offices to respect the laws of South Africa and peacefully return to their local residence. The office has described South Africa in a statement as a generous host country with progressive asylum policies. It says it will continue to support the government in providing assistance to refugees and asylum seekers. Regarding the removal of foreign nationals from outside its Cape Town offices, the UNHCR says it is following developments. The police were enforcing a court order. The UNHCR says it has received the concerns of protesters about personal safety, among other things. Channel African News, I am Onelin Sinzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Hello. To celebrate African women's achievements, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, listen to Humanity, Women in Unity, an advocacy radio program against all forms of gender-based discrimination and violence against women. Humanity, Women in Unity, on Channel Africa every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Humanity, Women in Unity, with Dr. Amalea Gonez-Malka, every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday morning at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Channel Africa, celebrating African women's achievements, the voice of the African Renaissance, from an African perspective. Russia joined South Africa in abstaining in a vote to renew the UN mission for the referendum in Western Sahara, arguing that it was not balanced and did not provide a true reflection of the efforts undertaken by the Frente Polisario and Morocco. There is a growing concern from South Africa that attempts are being made by some council members to shift away from any notion of a self-determination referendum as envisaged when the mission was established in 1991 towards Moroccan proposals of greater autonomy for the region. Region, but within that kingdom's sovereignty. Rabat's envoy was clear after the council meeting that the referendum is dead. Shown by peace reports. The results of the voting is as follows. 18 votes in favor, no one against, two abstention. The resolution has been adopted as resolution 2494-2019. No consensus with 13 in favor and two abstentions for the 12-month mandate renewal and the accompanying text emphasizing the need to achieve a realistic, practicable and enduring political solution based on compromise, forcing Russia and South Africa to balk. Listen to Ambassador Jerry Machila. We note that once again, terms such as realistic, realism and compromise are being used in the resolution. These references are an attempt to undermine 
the principle of self-determination for the people of Western Sahara, which as has been established by numerous United Nations General Assembly and Security Council resolutions as relevant to the situation in Western Sahara. This council must reaffirm its long-standing and unequivocal commitment to the right to self-determination for the people of Western Sahara in an unqualified manner. Machila also objected to the process of negotiating the text of the resolution that was first shared with the so-called Group of Friends of Western Sahara that includes France, Russia, Spain, the United Kingdom and pen holder the United States. Not a single African country is party to the group, despite this being an issue on the African continent. Despite being elected by General Assembly to serve and participate in the work of Security Council, we have not been given that opportunity. This process of having the council members that are not members of the group of friends a text with a take or leave it approach is not sustainable and does not allow us an opportunity to carry out our mandate. Morocco's ambassador Omar Hilal indicated that while it respected the South African and Russian positions, the focus should be on the text that was adopted by 13 members of the council. Not me who is writing or adopting resolutions. So since 2001, no UN or Security Council resolution is speaking about referendum. Referendum is over. Referendum is dead. The members have already buried definitively the referendums. So they are just lying to themselves. They are just lying to the people in the camps. And they are just, as in France say, selling to the population of the camps in terms of wind and sun. That's all. Concerning the self-determination, you know, there is no single uh, definition of self-determination. But if you go to any dictionary, it means that giving the right to population to express itself. Frente Polisario objected to the 12-month renewal and raised concerns at the slow pace at which the Secretary-General was reappointing a new special envoy for Western Sahara after the resignation of former German President Horst Kohler in May. Polisario's Dr. Sidi Omar expressed concern that the Council was reverting to a business-as-usual approach on this file. Frente Polisario and the Sahrawi people accepted in 1991 to lay down arms in exchange of a self-determination referendum. That referendum has not been held. So we have and we have always had on the table the possibility of taking up arms and using all other uh, legitimate means to attain our rights. We have agreed to the ceasefire in exchange of a referendum. The referendum is not there, so the Saharawis and the Polisario leadership will definitely take the appropriate decisions uh, come December when we convene our uh, General Congress. The resolution requests the Secretary-General to brief the Council on a regular basis at any time he deems it appropriate during the mandate period. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. More than three and a half million Syrians have fled north to Turkey. However, the government wants them to go back to Syria and has given them until midnight today to return or run the risk of being deported. There are, But there are widespread claims that many people have already been forced to go back, including some to war-torn Idlib province. The BBC's Mike Thompson reports from Istanbul.
Istanbul is thought to be home to around half a million Syrian refugees, but you wouldn't know it anymore. Under the current crackdown, any found by police without valid registration papers risk being deported to Syria, so most are now too frightened to walk these streets. Abdullah, which is not his real name, wasn't registered in Istanbul, but came to find work. He'd lived happily here for three years, but now rarely dares leave his tiny flat. I'm constantly living in fear of things that could happen, like being separated from my wife and deported. It seems he has good reason to fear. Many Syrian refugees claim to have suffered that fate recently. This man, who's too frightened to be named, says he's been deported to Idlib, a war zone, an act that would breach international law. The plans are bombing everywhere. Even schools, hospitals, everywhere there is bombs. Every day a lot of people died. There is no peace here. After finding that he and others with him hadn't been registered in Istanbul, Turkish police ordered them all to sign a form. I don't speak Turkish very well, so when they gave us uh, the form, we didn't know what we signed. They said to us, you must sign on this paper. So after we signed, they led us to the border and to Idlib. Yet despite such powerful testimonies, the Turkish government denies that any Syrian refugees have been forcibly returned. Instead, it says more than 300,000 of the country's 3.7 million refugees have gone back voluntarily. Yet according to a report by Amnesty International, the number of refugees coerced into signing voluntary return forms before being sent back to Syria is likely to run into hundreds. Earlier this month, under pressure from growing resentment against Syrian refugees, President Erdogan gave Europe a warning. Either help Turkey establish a safe zone in North Syria for two million refugees, or take them yourself. A stance that won plaudits in Turkey. Celia Eliacic of the pro-government think tank SETA. Europe have to understand, Turkey has no option but creation of safe zone to return Syrian people or giving the refugees the opportunity to go to Europe. Life in war-torn Idlib is so frightening that many deported refugees risk their lives to get back across the Turkish border. Some don't make it. I'm greeted at the door by a distraught father. Mustafa Al-Stif tells me that his 20-year-old son Hisham was recently deported to Idlib and then shot dead when he tried to get back across the Turkish border. He leaves behind three small children. It's not just my son that was killed. The heart of the whole family has died. So our fate is the same as my son's, but it's a slow death. That report by the BBC's Mike Thompson in Turkey. When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. 
This is 1000 African Voices and I'm your host, Aburengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa, rise. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. As the first human rights issue to provoke wide international slavery is perpetuated by traditional practices such as child and forced marriage and by the fact that almost half the countries in the world have yet to criminalize it, according to the latest UN figures, 40 million people were living in a state of modern slavery in 2016. For more on this, Anna Kamo of UN News spoke to Umila Bula, UN Special Rapporteur on Contemporary Forms of Slavery. I would say firstly the fact that almost half the countries in the world have not criminalized slavery and even those countries who have criminalized slavery face problems with enforcement of the laws, effective labor inspections, identification of victims, um, prosecution of criminals. So in terms of the legal framework and the policy framework, I think that is a huge problem as a starting point. Secondly, I think that there are challenges with the rule of law in many countries. So where slavery occurs as a result of uh, corruption of officials or borderline officials, for instance, uh, first responders to human trafficking and victims, there's a lack of an adequate framework to ensure that that happens. So there's insufficient victim identification and victim protection. I think in terms of prevention also, that a lot more needs to be done by governments to ensure that they are preventing slavery by addressing some of the root causes that lead to slavery, like eradicating poverty, ensuring a greater access to education, addressing the causes of forced labor like inequality and also forced labor in global supply chains. And then lastly, I think also the fact that uh, almost 90% of workers A work in the informal sector in developing economies contributes to slavery and perpetuating slavery because they are extremely vulnerable. So you mentioned forced labor as uh, contemporary forms of um, slavery, also sexual slavery, but there's also several forms of marriage. Can you speak a little bit about the roots of that and um, how traditional slavery can persist as a state of mind among victims, but also among perpetrators? I think that that's a very key question because servile forms of marriage occur basically where there is a forced or child marriage and it really is a, is a transaction to ensure exploitation, both labor exploitation and sexual exploitation of the person who is forced to enter into that marriage. But what we see is a situation where slavery globally is perpetuated by some of these traditional practices and harmful practices like forced and and child and early marriage. But it results also in a state of mind where the victims are often hesitant to speak out because they're not aware of protection frameworks. They can't access legal frameworks. 
um, the law is complex, or they're not even aware that their rights have been violated. And they've entered into this kind of um, arrangement basically at the request of their families. And in many cases, there are young children involved, there are girls involved, and they're not able to identify how to exit from that situation of extreme exploitation. So fear perpetuates um, the condition of slavery that they're in. I wanted to speak a little bit about the regions of the globe where slavery is more present. Also, it often occurs in isolated areas, making it harder to access uh, these people that are in slavery conditions. Can you speak a little bit about those certain regions and what makes them more vulnerable? You spoke a little bit about poverty also and how that affects these regions. So the data indicates that clearly there are certain regions of the world where there is a higher prevalence of slavery. Also, there are greater numbers of of people. And that would be in the Asia-Pacific and sub-Saharan Africa. There's also in sub-Saharan Africa an increase in child slavery, in children trapped in um, situations where they're forced to beg on the streets as a result of um, the way in which some schools, Islamic schools, are said to indoctrinate them. Um, there are also greater instances of child marriage and forced marriage and more examples of domestic servitude. In the Asia-Pacific region, we see that uh, there is a greater vulnerability to being trapped in forced labor in global supply chains because most of the big uh, multinational and the supply chains for global brands often end in at the lowest level in some of the, uh, the poorest or the developing East Asian countries. But the problem is that slavery itself happens in a clandestine way. It is often invisible. So the victims are unprotected. They are often not identified. And yes, geographic isolation in some regions, for instance, in sub-Saharan Africa, in West Africa, I found in my country visits that there are a number of situations where people are not able to report that they are in slavery. They don't have access to information which enables them to exercise their rights. You were speaking about fear, and we know that fear is deeply rooted in slavery. And the majority of those who suffer are the most vulnerable. Can you speak about the importance of addressing slavery amongst migrants and refugees? Uh, migrants and refugees are extremely vulnerable because of um, transnational migration and because of the fact that the principle of safe and orderly migration that doesn't really exist. And immigration policy is often used to exclude people from certain countries, even though they are fleeing conflict or climate change. And that results in perpetuation of slavery. And it, it really creates fear of reporting situations of slavery because those who are victims are often, even if they have a legal right to work, a legal right to be in the country, they may not um, legally be allowed to work. Or they may have lost their rights to residence or their rights to work, as I found in the situation affecting many agricultural workers in the south of Italy during a visit last year. So the fear of deportation is there if they report because they've committed a crime by being in irregular migration, or maybe they are undocumented, maybe their passports have been confiscated, so they are, are fearful of the situation. That's Omola Bula, the UN Special Rapporteur on Contemporary Forms of Slavery, speaking to Anna Kamo of UN News.
The United Nations has officially launched a global fund for survivors of conflict-related sexual violence at an event to mark the 10th anniversary of the establishment of the Mandate on Sexual Violence in Conflict. The mandate was established by the Security Council in 2009 under a special representative of the Secretary-General dedicated to preventing and addressing the scourge of conflict-related sexual violence. South Africa's International Relations Minister Naledi Pando, reflecting on sexual violence in her own country, called for greater attention to be focused on better understanding why the proliferation of sexual violence, particularly against women and girls, continues. Show and Bryce Peace reports from New York. Marking a decade of concerted action to combat sexual violence in conflict, a much-needed paradigm shift, recognizing conflict-related sexual violence as a threat to international peace and security. Listen to the Secretary-General's Special Representative for Sexual Violence in Conflict, Pramila Patton. I am extremely pleased that we, are, we have launched uh, the Global Fund for Survivors because I think... Uh, uh, Post-conflict uh, reconstructions have uh, there has been a huge oversight. They have they have failed uh, victims uh, of sexual violence, uh, and and reparation is truly uh, what is the most victim survivor-centered uh, approach in terms of giving back their 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 dignity. With messages re-emphasized here that it's been cost-free for too long for perpetrators of these heinous crimes where victims of conflict then bear the added indignity of rape and assault. Dr. Dennis Mukwege was a co-recipient of the Nobel Prize for Peace in 2018 for his work with victims of sexual violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo. When we are talking about sexual violence in conflict, we need really to realize that the big problem is impunity. And uh, we need really to improve the way that justice is delivered for victims of sexual violence in, in conflict. I can take the example of Congo. You know, a report was released in 2010. Next year, it will be 10 years. This report was done by the expert of the UN about crime happening in the, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And Ten years after, no one single implement, a recommendation of this report was implemented. So if there is no justice, it's a message to uh, criminals that they can go on doing crimes without any consequence on them. Fellow laureate Nadia Murad, now a human rights activist, was among almost 7,000 minority Yazidi women and girls kidnapped by ISIS in Iraq in 2014 and held for three months where they were enslaved, raped and beaten before she was able to escape. Asked here to weigh in on the recent death of ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. We don't want to just see uh, the uh, ISIS uh, like Baghdadi just get killed. We want to see justice. There is thousands of ISIS. They jo- they join Al Baghdadi and they they are continue to do what he did. And uh, at first, I talked to my sisters in law. Six of them when they were in captivity, and they get they 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 have been in in very bad situation at that time and they lost their uh, husband and I asked my family first because all of them were survivors and everyone was say okay but this is just Baghdadi and how about all these ISIS how about those they they 
they they rape us, they stole us, they still have our uh, uh, girls, they still have our children. Minister Pandor, who co-hosted the Global Fund's launch, talked about South Africa's shame in dealing with domestic issues of sexual abuse and exploitation, including when SANDFUN peacekeepers violated those they were sent to protect. One of the areas in which we do need to give greater attention is that of research. I don't think we're doing enough to understand the factors that relate to the practice and levels of violence that we see in many of our societies. We need, through improved research, to have a deeper understanding of the causal factors and to attack these in order to ensure that we end the scourge of violence against women. And I don't think we're yet doing enough. Pando welcomed the deployment of gender and women protection advisors in UN peace operations as part of efforts to end sexual violence in conflict. I'm Sherman Bryce Pease in New York. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Our headlines up next with Onelin Sinsi. SABC News. Independent. And impartial. From an African perspective. Mozambique's main opposition party, Renamo, has asked the country's top court to annul the results of the October 15 general election. Nigeria's Supreme Court has dismissed an appeal filed by main opposition candidate Atiku Abubakar against the re-election earlier this year of President Muhammadu Buhari. And the UN is looking for a new venue for December's climate summit after Chile said domestic unrest has forced it to abandon its role as host. Channel Africa News, I am Onilin Sinzi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka. Analysts say that South Africa's government must do more to deal with the high wage bill in the public sector. Salaries for civil servants have grown by about 40% over the past decade. Government wants to achieve a 50 billion rand annual saving over the next three years. Over the next three years to reduce the growing budget shortfall that is currently over 50 billion rand. Tepamungwai reports. Finance Minister Tito Mboweni announced plans to engage with labor unions to bring down the current high wage bill. Currently, the wage bill accounts for 46% of tax revenue. Colin Coleman is with Goldman Sachs. The big ticket items, you look at the macro picture, the helicopter view, will be the public sector wage bill. 
is out of control. So it, it's, it's going to be very important for the leadership to show, demonstrate that they themselves are prepared to take some pain as well as broadly the public sector workers as a whole, which is nearly two million people. So that's the one area. The other area of drain and bleeding is obviously the state-owned enterprises, of which ESCOM is the elephant in the room. Economists say the 0.5% latest growth projection announced by Finance Minister Tito Mboweni is a true reflection of the current economic environment. Mboweni has forecast the economy to grow at 0.5% this year, compared with 1.5% expected in the February budget. Growth is only projected to increase at 1.7% in 2022. Christopher Yoon is with PricewaterhouseCoopers Advisory Services. I think the 0.5 is quite realistic at this stage. I know the Reserve Bank is at about 6%. Many other economists are at that level. So definitely the 1.5 we had in February was maybe too optimistic. We also saw the economy having lots of struggles so far. So I think it's good that they revised it lower. Obviously that has an adverse impact on the income forecast, but at least we are now in a bit more of a realistic uh, setting. Mboweni has incorporated the second version of the macroeconomic recovery plan into the medium-term budget policy statement. He told Parliament that the plan is based on lessons drawn from fast-growing emerging economies. It aims to open up network industries including transport, telecommunications and reorganizing ESCOM. It also plans to prioritize job-creating sectors such as agriculture and tourism. According to Mboweni, the document is a guide to action. But economic analyst Christopher Yoon says the plan still needs to be refined. He didn't say too much about that plan. I think the one thing he mentioned was that it has started a debate. I think the debate will continue. The plan is definitely not finalized. There's uh, definitely not an implementation plan yet behind it. So we'll definitely still have some time where we speak about this plan, debate about this plan. And I think in the, the corridors of Parliament, there's still lots of debates and fights to be had about exactly what's going to happen, what's going to be implemented. So maybe in February we know a bit more, but this was a bit too soon, I think, for anything more tangible, to be honest. The minister also announced plans to take away some government employee benefits. Plans include doing away with travel and cell phone benefits for civil servants. He also presented measures to reduce salaries for cabinet members, premiers and MECs. He's identified debt servicing costs among risks facing the country's finances. South Africa's debt exceeded 3 trillion rand. Debt is expected to rise to 4.5 trillion rent in the next three years. I am Tepo Mungwai in Parliament, Cape Town. The former executive of corporate affairs at South Africa's power utility ESCOM, Chose Treu, has denied that he pushed for the Gupta's New Age TNA breakfast to be sponsored by ESCOM. His testimony follows the former general manager of strategic marketing at ESCOM, Peter Pretorius. Pretorius had testified that Treu had, pres- had pressured him to finalize the contract speedily as the instruction came directly from ESCOM's former CEO, Brian Dames, and former Public Enterprises Minister Malusi Kikaba. TNA scooped over 59 million rand from ESCOM in three advertising and business breakfast conferences. Between contracts between 2012 and 2017. The contracts had not been approved by ESCOM's sponsorship committee. Trevor appeared before the State Capture Commission of Inquiry in Parktown, Johannesburg. Naledi Ngobo has more. 
Chou denied that he pressured his team to conclude contracts with the Gupta's New Age TNA newspaper. However, he did confirm that he had been receiving pressure from ESCOM's former CEO, Brian Dames, to conclude an advertising and sponsorship contract with the Gupta's TNA Breakfast. He further confirmed that Dames told him that the instruction to contract the TNA Breakfast came from former Public Enterprises Minister Malusi Gigaba. Chou is responding to questions posed by advocate K. What I understand you to deny is that Mr. Pretorius came and expressed concerns to you after his meeting with the TNA about the sponsorship, correct? You also deny what he says you said to him when he communicated those concerns, and that is that it was an instruction from Mr. Damas who had received an instruction from Minister Gigaba. Is that correct? You deny that? I deny that. Chou says over time, the relationship between ESCOM and the Gupta-owned New Age TNA Breakfast began to seem more like a commercial relationship in which TNA was benefiting, but with no real value for ESCOM. He says this is why he was reluctant to contract TNA for a second time between 2013 and 2014. Mr. Trey, just before we, uh, if I can yes. just get that last bit of your yes. evidence, did I understand you to say it's a commercial relationship which has no value to you? I, I say it may be. Hmm. It may be really. Because I was just explaining who, when it yes. becomes like that, it may just be a commercial relationship mm. with no value. And mm. as I understood your evidence, you started to form that view and that is why you didn't contract for that whole year between April 2013 and 2014. Is that correct? Yes. Chueu says his reluctance to continue with the TNA sponsorships began when the parliamentary committee started asking questions about the contract in 2012. First parliamentary questions occurred in 2012. In 2012. So from at least that point had you reached the realization that the value had been overestimated? I, I, I think uh, towards the end of 2012, um, early uh, 2013, that's yes. when I realized that, uh, you, you, you know, if you look at, we got a, a few questions mm. at the beginning of the year and we thought that uh, this was, and then in the next year, the questions started to multiply. Indeed. Cheu agrees that he was roped in to resolve a dispute in which TNA threatened to take legal action against ESCOM's media shop. He says TNA was taking legal action over late payments only five days after it had been contracted by ESCOM. They received a letter from TNA's lawyers threatening them about this particular uh, situation that you you owe us money, you don't pay us. Media shop rightly so because they are our agent. I discussed with Mr. Pretorius and ultimately they wrote to me of here to say, can you please intervene on our behalf? And then I signed the contract at that point. The commission will continue to hear new age TNA related testimony from the former non-executive board member of ESCOM, Mark Peminski, from former board chairman of ESCOM, Zola Tzolzi, and former brand and publicity coordinator at Transnet, Joseph Jackson. I'm Nalili Ngobo in Johannesburg. 
While South Africa's finance minister, Tutumboweni, has painted a bleak picture of the country's finances, the homes of members of parliament will be getting more than just a lick of paint come January next year. MPs of the Joint Standing Committee on the Financial Management of Parliament have heard that the Department of Public Works will spend 110 million rand on the refurbishing of 240 houses in parliamentary villages in Cape Town starting in January next year. MPs stay in the villages with roughly 500 units while they work at Parliament during the week. Celine Merrington has more. The three parliamentary villages in Cape Town, Acacia Park, Laboria and Pelican Park are maintained by the Department of Public Works. In total, there are more than 500 houses and 155 apartments between the three villages. In a written parliamentary reply earlier this month, the Minister of the Department, Patricia DeLille, indicated that 750 million rand has been spent on renovations and maintenance at the three parliamentary villages between 2009 and 2019. But the Department's Chief Director, Mzwandile Sazona, says there are more units that need work. Because we never have an opportunity to be able to get into those units and refurbish those units, they degraded and we are now sitting with this problem that if we do nothing now, they will further degenerate. 245 units have been identified to go through the refurbishment process, and this will cost the department an amount of 110 million. The director of projects at the department, Tembeka Kolele, explains what will be done. And the scope that is entailed there is the general repairs and renovations, painting, reinstalling electrical wires, um, the kitchen um, equipment, and and all like um, refurbishing the kitchens, refurbishing the the bathrooms and bedrooms. Um, it's total refurbishment of the 245 units. The Deputy Minister, Notkolo Kivet, says this excludes a second project not yet costed for the demolishing of units made of asbestos. We really, at this day and age, cannot be the ones housing members in houses that are in such a state. Because the prefabs have, have gone far beyond the life cycle. They, you know, they are amateur if one can use that word. We must stop all of us as South Africans to react after disaster when we know this has a potential for disaster. One of the co-chairpersons of the committee, Peace Mabe, acknowledges that the timing is bad. This topic it comes at an unfortunate time and uh, the economy is not doing well. But you can't stay in a house for 13 years with no maintenance. Yeah, 13 years. So I, I just want to correct that for, for the sake of... of of this committee so that we should not be seen as people who want to be taken care of uh, against all odds even if the economy is not doing well. That was the co-chairperson of the Joint Standing Committee on the Financial Management of the South African Parliament, Peace Mabe, ending that report by Zaline Merrington. South Africa's national health insurance will seemingly not only change the quality of health care provided, but it will also change the way the health sector operates. The new health financing system aims to do away with paper and use technology instead. This emerged during a discussion on the NHI and health research and development in Johannesburg. The NHI bill 
has been released for public comment and once approved in Parliament, will be rolled out throughout the country. All South Africans are expected to be covered under the NHI by 2026. Tabilem Bele reports. Recording all of 58.8 million South Africans on one health system is surely a mammoth task. Government is working on getting a system that will be both effective and able to keep patients' records safe. Glodina Lutz is the director at the Department of Science and Innovation. One of the things that we're actually going in specifically is to start looking at, say, for example, a green cell phone. That green cell phone or NHI cell phone will actually be for the service provider loaded with the correct apps that will give them the knowledge that they need. Lutz says the technology comes with its own challenges and expenses. When we start looking at financial sustainability, that's very important. You need to look at your regulatory compliance and cybersecurity. We're talking about big amounts of data that's going to start floating around. How do we protect it? You will have your cloud base that will be secured, but also have the information available. She says healthcare providers have to be taught a different way of dealing with patients. I don't know who of you have been lately into one of the clinics and ask the, the nurses to show you what they need to complete. There's this book, and nobody has told me what is in that book and what is actually being used for. But boy, they are completing it. It's a waste of time. You could do it on a cell phone, on a tablet. Dr. Nicholas Crisp from the National Health Insurance team in the Department of Health says doing away with paper would put more power in the hands of health professionals. And the way to do that in the fourth industrial revolution is to go digital. So right now we are spending a lot of effort, a lot of money, and a lot of heartache, if you like, especially with the CSIR as a partner, to develop the digital platforms to run the NHI fund. That includes all the accredited providers, all the users who register on the system, all the procurement that has to happen, everything. They guarantee that whatever technological device they agree on will reorganize and redirect how we currently manage health care. I'm Tabilem Belev in Johannesburg. Our economics update up next with Tabi Solohoko. Good morning, you're listening to Channel Africa. Economists say half a percent economic growth projection announced by South African Finance Minister Tito Mboweni in his medium-term budget policy statement is a true reflection of the difficult economic environment in South Africa. Mboweni has forecast the economy to grow at half a percent this year, down from the February prediction of 1.5 percent. Growth is only projected to increase at 1.7% in 2022. Christy Phil Yun is with the PricewaterhouseCoopers Advisory Services. The big ticket items, you look at the macro picture, the helicopter view will be the public sector wage bill is out of control. So it, it's, it's going to be very important for the leadership to show, demonstrate that they themselves are prepared to take some pain as well as broadly the public sector workers as a whole, which is nearly 2 million people. So that's the one area. The other area of drain and bleeding is obviously the state-owned enterprises, of which ESCOM is the elephant in the room. However, Goldman Sachs analyst Colin Coleman says government must do more to deal with the high-wage bull sector. 
New data reveals that Zimbabwe's trade deficit, which represents an outflow of domestic currency to foreign markets, narrowed by 66% to 670 million US dollars between February and September this year compared to the same period last year. Figures released by the Zimbabwe Statistics Agency show that between February and September, the country imported goods and services worth 3.2 billion US dollars against exports of 2.5 billion US dollars. According to Zimstats, the trade figures for January 2018 are still not available because of the Zimbabwe Revenue Authority, which is the source of merchandise trade data, has not produced them. The Central Bank of Nigeria says that 28 million bank customers have never received loans from their banks. A Deputy Governor Financial System Stability Director at CBN, Aisha Ahmed, said this while speaking at the 4th National Fintech Conference in Lagos. Stressing the need for innovation and bridging the financial inclusion gap, especially access to credit gap, Ahmad called on banks and fintechs to pursue responsible, responsible innovation which promotes inclusion in the financial industry. Uganda has ordered telecoms operators in the country to list on the local boss, part of a move to encourage local ownership of the sector. The country's operators, which are nearly all foreign-owned, have been negative have been given rather two years to list at least 20% of their shares. Firms include a local unit of South Africa's telecoms giant MTN Group and a subsidiary of India's Bharti Airtel. President Juerim Seveni has said that the move could conserve the country's scarce foreign exchange as a portion of the firm's dividend payouts would remain in the country. The US dollar is trading at... 359.63 Nigerian Nara, 10.68 Botswana Pula, 102.29 Kenyan Shilling, and 13.22 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you four Brazilian roll, 63.88 Russian ruble, 70.66 Indian rupee, 7.5 Chinese yuan, and 14.79 to the South African rand. The US dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,497, platinum $926 per ounce, brand crude oil is at $60.82 a barrel. It's Channel Africa. Our sports updates up next with Figile Lingwati. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
And in this hour, we begin with rugby news fit again. The winger Cheslin Colby returns to the Springbok team in the only change to the match day 23 for Saturday's Rugby World Cup final against England at Yokohama International Stadium. Kickoff time 1100 hours Central African time. He regains the right wing berth from stand in Spungosi in the only change to the team that eased their way to a 19 16 victory over Wales in Sunday's semi final. Siakolisi will lead the team out for the 20th time as he becomes the 8th player in the 23 to have won 50 caps. Coach Rashi Rasmus named the now familiar 6-2 split on the bench to field a settled lineup, 22 of whom will be appearing together for the fourth time in the tournament. This lineup first played together in the playoff clinching 49-3 win over Italy a month ago and was retained for the quarterfinal, semifinal and now final. Only Colby's ankle injury interrupted the pattern. Bloemfontein Celtic coach John Maduga says the Springboks have done South Africa and the rest of the African continent proud by qualifying for the finals of the 2019 Rugby World Cup at the weekend. Since 1987, South Africa has won the trophy twice in 1995-2007, while England has won it once in 2003. Maduga shares his thoughts on this weekend's final match. It's very good to see that you know Springbok have done very very well. You know that they're in the finals, and what I can say is wishing them all the best in the cup final. I mean, they are representing. They are not only representing South Africa, but they are representing the African continent. You know that is you know. I mean, it's, you know, soccer World Cup. We have struggled, you know, as Africans as as an African continent. But you know, when things are happening, you know, at the right side, that you know. Uh, we will be a, we are we are able to compete with the best you know in the world. I mean it's it's something that we have you know to proud of. So what I can say to uh, to to the team to say was that you know wish them all the best. Go there, make us proud. They have already made us proud, you know, to to where they are now. You understand? Go there and win it and bring it to Africa. Love them and we're so proud of them. On the football news, Nigeria Football Federation, NFF, have recalled skipper Ahmed Musa, South Africa-based goalkeeper Daniel Akbay, and midfielder Mikel Agu for next month's 2021 Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers against Benin and Lesotho. The Super Eagles will open their qualifying campaign for the tournament in Cameroon on the 14th of November in the southern Nigerian city of Uyo and then travel to Lesotho three days later. Musa who plays for Saudi Arabian club Al Nasir, missed the recent friendly against five-time world champions Brazil and Singapore due to injury. Akpei had been overlooked since the Africa Cup of Nations in Egypt after coach Gennard Raw criticized the Kaiser Chiefs goalkeeper for Algeria's stoppage time winner in the semi-final. And still with football news, South African security forces involved in the Soweto Derby quarterfinal to be played in Durban this weekend will adopt a no-nonsense approach to any unruly activity fan behavior. The Premier Soccer League's Chief of Security, Jacques Robelard, has warned that illegal ticketing, misbehavior of supporters, and timely arrival for the game between Kaiser Chiefs and Orlando Pirates to be played at the Moses Mabida Stadium in Durban are some of the key concerns for officials. Robelar explains. We appeal on the spectators once they're inside the venue to obviously behave like good corporate citizens of this country. We have seen soccer matches being plagued by unruliness. We've seen soccer matches being plagued by 
um, aspects of um, aggressiveness. We've seen um, soccer fans running onto pitches. We've seen soccer fans damaging equipments and dam damaging stadiums. And that is something that we as a PSL cannot stand for. And I don't think that the general law-abiding soccer supporters in this country will stand for that. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Security Council renews a UN mission mandate in Western Sahara, and South Africa's Finance Minister Tito Mboweni delivers his mid-term budget. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuto Vamagadza, technical producer Sviso Mashejo, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of our hour for the news is Salif Keta with a song titled Manju.